I like we we obviously covered a lot there. Um a lot of football focus, I suppose. But I don't know, what what did you think of that? It was good, wasn't it? Well, you know, when I first returned from Spain and I, I saw this organisation in my local area offering mm. football, I thought, what, what can I do? I've yeah. got this football coaching background. I've got this mental health background. What can I do to support? And to provide some training for their volunteers at that time in 2022 and to now look and hear what Mark mm. and his team have achieved over that period of time since 2022 is just uh, mind-blowing. You know, yeah. and it, it seems, as always with our guests, they're just starting out. They're just scratching the surface. Yeah. You know, so much we joked about world do. domination. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> they've got some serious plans about growth for yeah. young people, women, and, um, you know, growing into different sports, which yeah. would be impressive, you know, because uh, I think sport can make such a positive difference to people's mental yeah. health and well being. And, you know, if organisations like this, whose core values are, we just want to make a difference, um, if they can do that, then, yeah, for me, I, I was just blown away by how, how it's grown. What did you take from it? Yeah, I, the, the, I suppose there's two elements to it. The charity itself is impressive, but mm. also, and I, maybe we glossed over it a bit, but like the starting point, he kind of explained where he started all of this from. Yeah. Like, he, you know, I'm not giving too much away but like he'd lost his job and and another lot of negative things had happened in his life but we've now it kind of goes to a point where we were kind of as you would say he's growing his charity mm. he's turned his life around and literally the charity has grown while he's grown as a person which i know sounds quite cheesy but he's achieved a hell of a lot um mm. and i think mm. he kind of he downplayed that element of it quite a lot really that wasn't so much of the important thing. It was the the whole thing was who they could help with the charity. Mm. The focus mm. is on that, which which is admirable. But yeah, he's as I say, he seemed to underplay quite a quite, well, in a, did underplay it quite a lot. What kind of what he's gone through to get to where he is now. So yeah, it's impressive, very impressive. Yeah, and so. it's just right, um, well, an ongoing thing where they're gonna, you know, get even more impressive. So I'm gonna watch again. Uh, this space yeah. um, with uh, really good care and interest to see, you know, the the great things and how they come to fruition. Yeah, I was going to say, well, let's let's get straight to it and uh, let the listeners hear. Um, the episode is brilliant. So, yeah, let's let's kick it off. Mark, how's uh, 2024 started for you? It's been great. Um, it doesn't seem that long ago since it was 2023, but, um, you know, no, 2024 has been great. <laughs> We've kind of hit the ground running um here ahead in the game so uh yeah and i'm just really looking forward to getting stuck into all the challenges and things that are coming our way this year good so Some mark of our in listeners... relation to that you yeah. know obviously yeah go on, on day there's a delay now isn't there what's happening yeah <laughs> I, I don't know i was gonna ask what you're probably gonna ask it so some of our listeners will be yeah, aware of heading the game um but i think some of them may not be so mark do you want to just give us a an overview or, or potted history of, of heading the game? I'll give you the short story because the long story probably take longer than this podcast. But um, the short story is, is that we created um, heading the game in 2020. Um, the reason for that was very much um, off the back of the pandemic. Um, we just recognised and noticed that there was a bit of a gap um, in mental health provision. And ideally, what we really wanted to do from day one was create a safe, 
um, comfortable environment for men to come together, um, number one, to play football, but number two, to have a, an environment where they can talk um, about their mental health. Um, and what we really wanted to do was kind of focus in on some of the things that men probably wouldn't feel comfortable talking about to their friends, to their families, to their work colleagues. Um, and what we found quite quickly after starting these sessions is that men do like to talk, but they just don't have the right environments and sometimes don't have the right um, levels of confidence or sometimes even the knowledge of, of knowing how to talk. Um, so that's kind of why we started the charity. And I think since since 2020, we've we've grown, we've um, we've established ourselves as, 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 you know, quite a, quite a big player, certainly in Kent in terms of um, supporting men's mental health. And it's, um, yeah, it's been wonderful to see so much happen in such a short period of time. So Mark, we obviously met about two years into it when I returned from Spain and I saw this great project online and because it combined the two things that I'm most passionate about football and mental health first aid and, you know, mm. supporting people with that. Um, I, I contacted you and reached out to say, look, is there any way that I can support? And, you know, you kindly said to me, well, look, why don't you put a, a workshop together um, for some of our guys just to have a chat and um, see how that lands? So how did that really come across to the guys? Because I, I never really followed up with you on that. Um, did they find it useful? Was it something they still implement? Um, how does that look now? two years yeah. on i suppose yeah most definitely simon and i think the most important thing about that training going back a few years um as you quite rightly say was um i think at that point we were still we were still finding our feet of how we wanted to deliver head in the game um mm -hmm. we knew that we was onto something combining football with mental health what we really needed was a almost like a structure of how that mental health advice gets delivered and just to be clear for people that don't know, you know, we do this stood on the middle of the football pitch on the centre circle. So what we what was great that we got from you was a real sense of um, it's OK to talk about these things, number one. But also, I think one of the things the guys really took on board was the, the importance of, of listening and the importance of not being afraid to have sometimes difficult conversations about people's mental health and well-being. And mm. that group that you worked with. Simon, um, were actually a group of volunteers. So they were, yeah. forget how many exactly it was, but I think it was maybe 10, maybe 12 mm. guys who were volunteers who had um, put themselves forward to, you know, to, to help us deliver the sessions, but had really shown commitment to wanting to learn more about mental health and um, almost sort of grow their knowledge base as well. So mm. um, it landed really well. And it's funny you should mention it because quite often I, I sort of think back to those early days and although heading the game has changed vastly from those original sessions sort of back in 2020 and 2021, the origins of that training and the origins, the origins of what we did um, in the early days still rings true now because it, mm. it's all about talking and it is all about um, having a safe, comfortable environment to do that. Yeah, yeah. Because um, um, I think the big thing for me was it was in my local area as well. It was in Thanet. It was in Minster, I think. That's right. And, um, the guys were so open um, to just taking on some messages, but also role modeling. And I think that was the thing that I found so powerful. It was their willingness to role model um, to these other people who were coming. Because I imagine when you first rock up a, a head in the game session, you've taken that step to go, I want to do something about, you know, what's happening with me. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, you've got this empathetic, supportive group there 
who uh, are role modeling, we've been through it, you know. And I think being willing to do that is such a powerful message. And is that something uh, across the programs that you see grow even more now? You know, what does it look like for someone when they first turn up ahead in the game? I think people will be fascinated by that. Mm. I mean, we quite often say that week one is, is the hardest week, and it is the hardest mm. week. Because you, you've taken the plunge, you've seen one of our one of our adverts online, perhaps on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere like that. You've signed up, you've gone through the referral process, you've been contacted by us to say, look, we'll see you at seven o'clock down in, you know, Thanet, Maidstone, Medway, wherever. And then you get to about half past five that evening and you look at the clock and you think, Blimey, am I really going to do this? Am, am I really going to turn up, um, you know, to a, a football session with a lot of people I don't know, I've never met them before. I've got to start talking about my mental health and oh, am I actually going to do it? And, you know, mm. for those people who get to that first session and a lot of work by my team um, behind the scenes to ensure that people do turn up to that first session. Um, but for those that do, they nearly always exactly say the same thing time after time. I don't know why I was so concerned. Um, I'm so glad I've made this, I've made this um, step and taken the plunge, so to speak. But it's actually about ensuring that we make it easy for people to join that first session and something that we do and anyone that kind of delivers these types of services i'm sure would, would back me up on this but um quite often our participants will get in the car park and they'll park mm. up and see the pitch and they'll just sit in their car and you can yeah. almost sense they're still contemplating even though they've driven to the session and they're parked up i'm actually going to get out of the car so what we've started to do or, or what we've been doing for a while now is we'll have a couple of um, couple of our coaches, a couple of my team will be uh, in the car park by the gate. And if we see people sort of sat there in their cars, you know, guys in football kits, usually, yeah. usually middle-aged men, um, <laughs> just give them a little wave and we'll be like, you, you with us? You, you coming there? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so actually welcoming yeah, yeah. people onto the session and making it really welcoming and having someone on the gate just saying, oh, hello there, you know, like, my name's Mark, welcome to Head in the Game, we're just down there on pitch two, you know, off you, mm -hmm. um, makes such a difference. So that, I suppose, enrolling people at the beginning is is so important about making them feel safe and secure. And, you know, once people get past week one, then mm -hmm. they inevitably come back you know, week on week, week on week, week on week. And, you know, we, we sort of get to the end of the 12 weeks and, you know, we make a bit of a joke of it, like, do you remember how nervous you all were on week one? And like, no yeah. one was talking. It was all sort of stood there with your boot bags, like all nervous um, and kind of worried. But um, and I think that's 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 why the program is is so um, is so successful is because the word of mouth um, and people have shared their their experiences mm. and they you know they've really taken something from it. And just to come back to your point around um, the volunteers and people who give up their time, we we love the fact that the majority of our current crop of volunteers, and there's about 20 people now, are ex-participants of the programme. So they've been through the mm. programme, they've completed the 12 weeks, got to the end and they said, I want to give something back. How do I get involved? And then what we do is we train up, um, we train up those volunteers. We, you know, we, we turn them into almost like talking therapy coaches is, is a term we like mm. to use. Um, and then they help deliver the sessions. And um, in a couple of places, in Maidstone in particular, and also Danny Thanet, actually, you know, those groups are now totally run by our volunteers who are ex-participants mm -hmm. of the programme. They, you know, they, they, they've become really comfortable in talking about their their own experiences. So 
they know exactly what it's like to be that nervous participant on week one stood there, you know, waiting for the session to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think it's probably worth us saying at this point, because we will forget, people that are listening to this that are interested in finding out more, how do they go about that? Because we always, we always sometimes miss this off at the end. So I'm getting in there now so we don't <laughs> miss it off. Okay, so um, as ever with the Modern World um, website, the best place to go, which is www headinthegame.co.uk um, we're on all, all the socials and uh, we've got the same handle for all of our socials which is at h-i-t-g-c-i-o um, all the sessions are advertised on there um, we've also got um, a facebook community group so um, mm-hmm. not just for our participants but for supporters yeah. people that want to um, follow um, the charity can go on there and on there we share some more um, we kind of share more stuff about the program you know so we try yeah. We try and link um, the work we're doing on the program with some of the information that gets shared on the community group as well. So, um, yeah, they're the best ways to contact us. Brilliant. I I suppose if we take a step away then from... So it'd be good to kind of understand what motivated you to start all of this. You know, what what, what was that spark, I suppose, that got you started? Um, For me, it's it's a personal goal. Um, I... I suffered really badly with poor mental health and poor well-being. Um, mine started in 2011, 2012. Um, and I just had three, I had three really bad things happen to me in a short period of time. So mm. um, I was made redundant, which was a, a difficult thing in my, in my work life. Um, yeah. There was a breakup of a relationship um, with the, um, the person that I, you know, been, 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 been with for a few years and that meant a change of living accommodation and, you know, going for any yeah. breakups difficult. But again, when you live with somebody, so there was, there was that, there was that concern along with the financial concern of being made redundant. And at the same time, yeah. um, my dad got, um, liver cancer, um, which was a terminal diagnosis. So all within this sort of six month period, we had, um, loss of a job, breakup relationship and, you know, my dad passing away. So I was just in a, I was just in a really kind of bad place and I didn't really know where to turn. I didn't really know what to do. Um, really fortunate. I've got some good friends, got some, um, fantastic family around me, but I just felt like I couldn't burden my family anymore around how I was, how I was feeling. I, I felt like a bit of a burden and I didn't really know where to turn. And the one thing that kind of kept me going, this is going to sound really crazy, and I've told this story a few times, but one thing that kept me going was um, a five-a-side football team. So um, me and some of my close friends, we played football together all of our lives, um, and we had a five-a-side football team um, at the Gallagher, the Maidstone United Stadium, on a, uh, on a Tuesday mm-hmm. night. And it, I kind of realised it was the only sort of thing that I really looked forward to each week. And I've told all these guys this. We're, we're, you know, we're still friends now, and I, I will quite often say to them, They'll never know how important that Tuesday night football team was down at the Gallagher, because if that hadn't have been there, then I don't really know what would have happened. And I suppose Mm -hmm. the real origins of heading the game, the real origins of my story goes back to that, that it was, it was football was the thing that kind of got me through that period. And I got a new job, you know, I met somebody new, uh, things started to improve. And deep down, I, I suppose I always knew that was going to happen. 
And of course, yeah. with grief, like I mean, times a great healer. And with, with grief, I kind of, you know, I kind of um, got myself into a into a better mindset and, and, and was more mm. more capable of kind of dealing with with sort of long term grief. Um, but I've never forgot how important that little football team was. And when I look back on it now, I'm so grateful that I had that because if not, I probably wouldn't have I wouldn't have left the house. I would just would have probably spiraled into a into a kind of some sort of pit of despair of, of drinking and, you know, doing all the bad things that you shouldn't do when you're, you know, when you're, when you're at crisis point. So um, that was the real kind of origin for me of like, I believe football can do good and help improve mm. people's mental health or mental fitness as, as, as we like to say. So initially, Mark, you, um, you got some funding to get it off the ground. Mm. Um, talk us through that process because I don't know if you have a background in funding bids, but, um, what what did you sort of secure and how did that set you up? And also, where's that at the moment? Do you have to reapply? Have you reapplied? Yeah. Give us a little bit more insight into that whole process, please. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, so um, the first funding grant that we got, um, we, I still can't believe we got this money. We um, we, we didn't have a bank account. Um, we, <laughs> we had absolutely nothing. <laughs> and it was uh, a COVID recovery fund from uh, Kent County Council. And I wrote this funding bid. Luckily, I knew a little bit about how, how to write a funding bid from some of my previous work, um, working in the charity sector. Uh, but it was, for, it was like four and a half thousand pounds. So it wasn't, it wasn't this groundbreaking amount of money. Um, but we wrote this bid and it was all about in giving men the opportunity to get out and about after COVID. Obviously, with it being sport related, with it being mental health related, it obviously um, ticked enough of the boxes with the people at KCC to sign it off. And, you know, I had to very quickly get a business bank account so they could actually pay us the grants to deliver the, uh, <laughs> to deliver the service. Um, so it was four and a half thousand pounds and it came from um, KCC. And I think it was towards the end of uh, 2021 that we realised that this was scalable. And this was something that if we mm. found um, yeah. uh, a bigger funder or a bigger pot of money, we could then start to have these head in the game sessions um, in other places apart from just Thanet and Maidstone. So we applied to the National Lottery Community Fund um, and for a considerably more amount of money, it was six figures. And I can remember mm. even when I was writing it, there was, a little, there was a little part of me that was thinking, what am I doing here? I'm, 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 basically trying to, I'm basically trying to get the National Lottery to part with over £150,000 to fund yeah. this project, which, you know, a year ago, not even that, six months ago, was just a was just a just an idea it was just a you know, you know they've just... spent a lot more on a lot worse things if i'm honest i'm not saying anything yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna keep my mouth um, but um i wrote the bid it was like 40 pages um but again as as as, as um fate would have it i i was also um due to be made redundant again <laughs> oh wow so the timing yeah. for me was crucial because i'd been with my previous um, employer for uh, nearly nine years um i'd really enjoyed my time there um but redundancy was hanging was, was sort of hanging over my head and i thought to myself do you know what if i can get this funding bid right i potentially might be able to fund a full-time role with it now yeah. um, and we got it so we um we got that um a couple of years ago now um and that really gave us the platform to be able to go to more areas and um since then i think we've worked in nearly every single kent town bar gravesend tunbridge wells 
and Tunbridge. I think they're the only places in Kent that we've not been to to deliver head in the game at some point over the last couple of years. So that funding that we got from the National Lottery, we've so grateful because it's just given us um, it's just given us so much scope to deliver this and turn this into a really um, sustainable model that will hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, enable us to work with thousands of other people, not just in Kent, but across the UK as well. Um, so yeah, so the National Lottery, along with some other local funders, so um, Seven Oaks Council, um, Canterbury City Council, um, uh, I'm trying to think who else has funded us now. Um, a few other, a few other local organisations have, have funded us as well. So yeah, it's been um, it's been a real learning curve, and I think getting funding for a project like this is is the lifeblood. Mm. You know, the the, the volunteers are, are vital, but actually to get funding so you can book football pitches, so you can get mm. mental health training, so you can get all the equipment, so you can really scale up the operation with things like marketing and um, branding and all that sort of thing. So um, yeah. The most important part of all of this was last year we um became a charity um so that was that's that's still quite new for us that, that happened mm -hmm. in september um but that for us felt like a that felt like the reward for all the work for all the for all the nights we spent you know out in the rain and the cold um you know driving here there and everywhere sometimes not getting home till till gone midnight um getting that charity status was that real rubber stamp to say do you know what this this now feels official yeah as, as someone that's never i suppose put a proposal in like like you described mm. you know you said you obviously you had a back you you had some experience with doing this in the past do you think that whole proposal process is that a barrier do you think to some people to to take that step i suppose is it's it a daunting quite, I, imagine people yeah i was gonna say i imagine people find it quite daunting it is daunting and um there are funders out there who will fund um local groups so you know groups that aren't charities that you might be a small cic community interest company or you might be yeah i don't know maybe like a local church group who wants to do some good and there are funders out there who who will who will fund you um but it all depends on your ambition and it all mm. depends on the need and i think with um, heading the game really taken off after the, um, the the pandemic or the you know the, the COVID lockdown, so to speak. I think yeah. we we timed it at a, we timed it well. We timed it at a time where we kind of knew that there would have to be some sort of reaction from funders. <coughs> Excuse me. We knew there'd have to be some sort of reaction from funders because there was going to be this huge need, and mm. I, I don't want to get too political on a, on a on a podcast, but. I still don't think we've seen the full fallout of um, the mental health crisis from the pandemic. And you yeah. know, I still talk to people now who still don't feel comfortable leaving the house. Um, I was up in yeah. London last week for a work meeting and I saw quite a few people that are still wearing masks. And it just dawned on me, like, for some people, they're still stuck in a place yeah. scared of covid they haven't quite recovered um mm. coming back to your original point about the funding <clears throat> i do i do think for some people it is daunting and um some funders make it easier than others um yeah but i think to get any type of funding now is it is difficult yeah it is it's daunting and I, I i get you need to balance obviously um 
you know safeguarding you've you've got like if you if there's money involved obviously you want to make sure the the funds are being used in the correct manner and stuff like that but do you think there's an argument to kind of make the process more straightforward and you'll have more people come forward i suppose to apply for the, for, for funding and things there is um you know there are a couple of funders out there um i don't know i don't know if i can say the name of it but um a famous um pub chain um uh, they they give away quite a lot of funding, but they limit it to um, 90 second video pitches. So where I've, I'm used to like writing like 40 pages or 25 pages and doing like stuff you're talking about there, risk assessments and safeguarding, all that sort of stuff. Um, mm. But yeah, this particular um, funder, um, 90 second videos. So you've got 90 seconds to, to, to pitch, to talk about what you want to do with the money and how, and how you're going to spend it. And that's up to grants up to um, it was 5,000 pounds. So it mm. is, it is getting e it is getting a little bit easier, um, but I think you're right. I think with you know with larger amounts of money, um, if you're a, if you're a charity or if you've been a community interest yeah. company for a, a long a, a long time, I think you've got a much better chance. Um, but sadly, I think it, I think it does put people off. And you know we've got a series of um, legacy projects that we've left um, in some of the areas that we've worked in. So Thanet's one, Maidstone's the other, um, Medway as well. So. After we've delivered our 12 week program, um, we help facilitate the participants of that group who don't want to become volunteers for us, but to keep the football sessions, the football mental health sessions going. And we've really tried hard to get funding for those legacy projects. And mm -hmm. because it's, it is kind of ours, but it's not ours. It sometimes can yeah. be really difficult for those guys to um to get the funding in to, to to keep those sessions going so it is a shame but i think it's just the way that things are now i think it's it's anything of monetary value um you kind of have to do you have to jump for hoops to yeah to get the money yeah, in it's the it's the nature of the piece you mentioned obviously the 90 second pitches do you want to just you can say who it is which is it which pub chain is doing this because it it's does sound King. like a fantastic idea Green okay King. Green King, oh, um, no. and I can't remember exactly what it was called now, but I think it was called Football for uh, Football for something. It's got a catchy title to it, and I've yeah. done it a couple of times. And honestly, ninety second, ninety second video took yeah. me about three days to nail it. Yeah. Um, and we You're did just a perfectionist, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was Green King, and it was, it was really good. And I think it was hmm. more. I mean, we went for it, but I think it was more aimed at um, local football clubs that you know yeah. might, need, might need a kit or might need some balls or bibs or cones or new goalposts or whatever. Um, but yeah. I love it because it's there's no hiding from that. You know, like you yeah. can you can write and write and write. You can get somebody to write it for you. You can pay somebody to, to to write your bids for you. But if it's you as the CEO or the I don't know the 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 manager of the football team or whatever, and you're stood there and you've got a heartfelt pitch. Then yeah. I just think it's a, I just think it's a probably a better way of doing it. Oh, massively. So, with <laughs> any charity and uh, organisation who's got funding, you have to show impact, Mark. I imagine and pro yeah. produce reports. So, if you if you are looking at these legacy projects, it just sprung into my mind there that actually the integrated care you know networks that are springing up in the NHS surely must recognise this as a positive intervention to help people not become more unwell. So if someone can recognize and have the self-awareness, um, things aren't feeling too good for me at the moment, and they see mm. this option, 
you would like to think, or I would like to think, that the NHS would see this could actually be a cost-saving measure by, you know, having this sort of service. Is that something that is explored? Has, have you had any success with the NHS seeing the, the, the value of this programme or not just yet? A small amount. Um, a small amount. The sessions that we're running up in Dartford at the moment are partly funded by um, the NHS Trust. I think it's the mm. North, is it North, Northwest Kent NHS Trust. Mm. Sure. Um, but yeah, so that's partly funded there. Um, the interesting thing with our work, and this is um, probably going to be true of any suicide prevention charity out there, that it's really difficult to prove that your intervention has prevented a suicide. Now, for mm. um, most charities that say, for instance, cancer research, where does the money go? Well, the money goes to preventing cancer. We're working on a cure. And, you know, when there is a breakthrough, they can turn around and say, well, we've saved 11,000 lives. It's difficult for a suicide prevention charity to, to do that. So the way mm. that we pitch it, we pitch it as we are the, we are the earliest part of the earliest intervention to stop someone needing NHS support. Mm. And that's how we want to pitch it because we recognise that Joe Public, uh, everyone suffers with mental health. We all do. Mm. You, know, you do, David. I do. Um, you do, Simon. Yeah. I certainly do. Um, but that doesn't mean you have a mental health problem or you have a, you know, a, a mental health condition. Mm. It just means that basically you're human. Um, mm. And that's the way that we want to pitch this. We want people to come to our sessions who may have never even thought about mental health. But also we want the people who have been struggling a little bit and don't really know mm. where to turn. Um, mm. Because if you do have the, um, if you do, if you are brave enough to pick up the phone and try and make an appointment with your doctor, which in itself as a man is, 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 is tricky, you know, to get over the barriers of actually picking up the phone, admitting there's something wrong and getting through to the doctor's surgery and to then be told there's a three month waiting list. Yeah. <laughs> You know, where are you going to turn? Because you've you've built up all this, all this. You know, oh, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. I'm going to ring, I'm going to ring. I've got to ring, I've got to ring. Oh, sorry, it's a three month waiting list. Well, what do I do mm. for three months? So, we pitch ourselves as that early intervention point to hopefully capture people before any further poor mental health escalates. Um, so. Got to be careful how I phrase this because I don't want to bad mouth the NHS. But I think we all are aware that the um, the mental health sector at the moment, NHS services are probably a breaking point, and there are more mm. you know there are more inward cases coming in than than they can handle. So anything that we can do at the very start of that process, hopefully, will take some of the weight and strain off the NHS. Yeah, because they promote what you do, hopefully, at least. And if they're not yeah. going to fund it, you'd at least think they would say, look, have you heard of Head in Game? It's down the road. Um, yeah. We'll put you on your their websites because, you know, if someone is seeking some sort of support, it would be nice to know that your program popped up as something that they can go, you know what, why don't I try that first and just see if, you know, the exercise element, the socialising, the being outside mm. and, uh, you know, getting fresh air in my lungs and just disconnecting from whatever else is, you know, going on in my mind and just being free to play. You know, you would like to think that those benefits that playing football and uh, being in mm. a, a football project give you, you know, they just give yeah. you that freedom, don't they, and that disconnection from life's uh, woes, uh, as we can say. Now, it's called Head in the Game, which... um 
gives you quite a nice spectrum. You could be any game, couldn't you? Yeah. It doesn't just have to be football. Is that something you're exploring? Because I imagine <laughs> having worked in football my whole life, they always think, other sports always think, oh, football again, they're looked after, we're not. Yeah. Do you ever uh, explore other sports or have you? You know, I don't know if you've done other projects yet. You can't see my whiteboard down there, can you? Because I've got all the sports that I we're can't. looking at. Ah, <laughs> there we come. Uh, it's that you've read my mind. Um, yeah. yeah, and it, 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 there's probably two questions we get asked more than any other. Uh, number one is, are there any sessions for women that there now are? And maybe we'll come on to that yeah. later. Um, but the other one is, um, what about some of the other sports? And the reason why we chose football was because it was so easy to access. It's easy to access. Mm -hmm. There are football pitches everywhere. You can jump for goalposts down the local park. Pretty much anyone can get involved. You know, we've had some participants yeah. who are sort of pushing sort of 68, 69, nearly 70 years of age, which is which has been fantastic. Um, but yes, um, one of our big plans for next year is to start looking at other sports. Um, we, I'm the big football fan um, of the management uh, team who, who run head in the game, but we've also got people who are um, very knowledgeable when it comes to rugby, really knowledgeable when it comes to cricket. Um, so mm. I think they would be two really obvious places that we would start to yeah. look at. And we've already started to have some conversations with some, um, some local clubs, um, but mm. also some other charities that are involved in the mental health side of, of supporting, um, supporting those sports as well. Um, but yeah, and I think that will be the natural progression of the charity is that um, although football is a sport for everybody, um, it is unbelievably challenging. Uh, certainly last night during the storm uh, down in Dover, mm -hmm. the wind was sideways. <laughs> I mean, it was blowing <laughs> an absolute gale uh, to the point where, you know, it was almost impossible to play. So we do recognise that as a charity that um, I think to, to, to grow it to the national levels that we're looking to grow it to, um, to move into some other sports um, is inevitable. And I've, I'm really excited by that because, you know, as well as, as well as football, you know, I've always been into sports like table tennis and tennis and, and those types of games. And I think the sport is the hook to get people to turn up to the mental health sessions. Mm. We must never forget, yeah. you know, the core of our charity is suicide prevention, uh, mental health and mental fitness. The sport, the free sport is what, you know, is what gets people through the door. Yeah, it, I, it, I, up until I've in the last like eighteen months, I've had, uh, well, I haven't. My wife did, but I've got two very young kids, um, so it's kind of limited the amount of free time I suppose I've got. But yeah. before, uh, actually, to be fair, the first one I was still playing, so I used to go to a project called um, Man versus Fat. Oh yeah, no, um, no. and it was good. Uh, but one of the things that I that I came away from that when I first started going and kind of making friends and stuff like that, obviously the big aim of that is to lose weight, uh, things like that. But one of the other things that was kind of a side um, benefit, which from speaking to a lot of the people I was playing football with and stuff was there's, there seems to be a big issue with um, men from probably, I'd say maybe early thirties and upwards of loneliness mm -hmm. in that mm. you may not necessarily identify that that's an issue, but actually when I, when we were sat like waiting to get onto the pitch and you just chatting to your teammates, um, you kind of start to realize that there is people out there and I'd probably include myself in it as, as someone that moved to a new area. You don't know many people, but the interactions people have with other people mm. um, for some people, 
they, some of the people I was playing football with, that was the only time they were coming into contact with people that weren't in their family or, you know, who they live with. And that was the bit that got me. And, I, and then when you start to look at your own life, you then realize, actually, I don't interact with that many other people. Um, it's loneliness, something that kind of overlaps a lot of what you're doing. It's, it's a strange, what I mean, and I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate it, but I think you don't realize that loneliness is a factor in, in, in your own situation to some degree, but then it just kind of is there, I suppose. It's a huge factor. Um, and I think some of the saddest stories that I've heard over the last three years of, of running this um, are the stories of loneliness. And it tends to be, and I hate stereotyping, but it tends to be uh, middle-aged men who yeah. are, from an outsider looking in, really successful. They've got a good job, they've got a beautiful family, yeah. they've got a nice car, go on two nice holidays a year, et cetera, et cetera. But when they stood there on a football pitch, week one, week two, and they say, I haven't got any friends. And I look at that yeah. and just think, what do you mean you haven't got any friends? And when you break it down and you get to know these people, the reason why they haven't got any friends is that it's almost like life has taken over. And when I say that, is that yeah. for men, we find it quite difficult to make friends. Like we don't, yeah. I often think, it's going to sound strange saying this, but I often think about the difference between men's and ladies' toilets. So if you're in a bar, if you're in a restaurant or whatever, and you go to the men's toilet, it's usually silence. No one's talking. You go in there, you do your yeah. business, you wash your hands, you're done. You're trying to do that in as quick a time as possible. Yeah. We'll stand there and talk and they'll compliment strangers and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll do their hair and, they, you, you know, and they just start conversations. And men yeah. aren't particularly good at doing that. Um, no. The other thing as well about this is um, quite often men's friendship groups will be because of work or because of a, playing for a, a sports club or um, a mm. football team or something. So, you know. We've all been working from home for three years, <laughs> you know, so men aren't interacting in the same way anymore, you know, because they're not yeah. going to the office. They are not on that daily commute the same way that they used to be on the train going up to London or whatever. And then spending, you know, seven and a half hours in an office, maybe going for a drink after work. That stuff isn't taking place in the same way anymore. It's still there, but it's no yeah. way that it's not the same as it was 10 years ago. Um and if you're not part of a sports team or if you haven't got a strong hobby, if you're not, you know, playing golf or playing cricket or whatever, then how do you make friends? How do you, yeah, as a, a middle-aged man, how do you <laughs> make friends? Because it's not the norm to walk into a pub by yourself and go, I'm yeah. just going to start talking to a random group of blokes because what probably yeah. most of them are going to get a punch on the nose. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, can you see where I'm coming from? And obviously I'm making a oh, joke. Oh, massively. It is yeah. quite no, a serious thing that, yeah. you know, and one of the things that I, I love about this project and um, my, my um, fellow management team will hate me for saying this, but I'm going to say it. I love week one and I love week 12. And I love week one because I love seeing a group of strangers come together and all that nervousness that we were talking about earlier on. And then at week 12, when they're all mates, they're all joking and they're sort of, you know, bantering with one another. And it's not just about football banter. It's about you know, just, just general banter. And then you see these little friendship groups have, have kind of yeah. developed. And um, I'll never forget the first time um, there was a group of five guys in Maidstone who we'd been um, working with. I think a group of like 12, but um, five of these guys had formed this really tight friendship and had kind of invited us out for beers on a Friday night. And we was like, that we we can't come to stuff like that, you know, like safeguarding and, you know, it's, it's, mm. it, it's kind of not the, not the done thing. It's, it's, you know, not something that we can do. 
But the fact that they, these five strangers had formed this friendship group and they felt so comfortable with us, they wanted to invite us to come along for a beer on a, on a Friday night mm. it was, was amazing. And I think that's something that we quite, we quite often forget because obviously we do get um, sometimes quite bogged down in impact reports, statistics and outcomes and all the things that the funders need. But at the core of this charity and the core of this project, it is about eradicating loneliness and it is about creating friendship mm. groups long after we're gone. So, you know, like mm. the, the group down at Thanet that you mentioned at the beginning, Simon, you know, they're still together. That group that mm. we put together nearly three and a half years ago, they're still playing football together once a week uh, on a Tuesday night. They call it Project Talking Football now, but we've still got some of the original participants from our very first ever session. So it's it's lovely to see, but yeah, don't underestimate how how dangerous loneliness can be for, you know, for men in general. But I think your project allows that psychologically safe space for people. There's an element of vulnerability, isn't there? Because mm. I know that you will facilitate a conversation at the start of the, the sessions to just check in with people and see how they're getting on. And I think once people uh, recognize that and see this is a safe space, this is fine, it just breaks down those barriers that weren't, mm. you know, that can be built up if you went in a pub because there is probably people there that would like a chat. But like you say, yeah. that environment is not conducive to, no. you know, going up to speaking to a stranger because they'll start assuming all sorts of different things about you. You know, yeah. so I think being able to facilitate those conversations in a, a, a vulnerable way really does just erode those barriers. Now, I know that you've run this project up north and mm. northerners, I've always found, are a lot friendlier anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, I was up at the lakes at, at Christmas. And you'll get someone chat to you, you know, wherever you stand still for a second, they'll, they'll, they'll have a chat with you. Uh, did you get similar sort of feedback up there? Because was it Sheffield? Was it Sheffield? It um, was Sheffield, yeah. yeah we, um, quite a macho place, I think, Sheffield in lots of ways. Yeah, well, the, the steel city, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. Do you know what? We, we really want to challenge ourselves. Um, and it would be really easy for us to have our lottery funding sit down here in Kent, maybe run two or three sessions a, a month and produce some really good results. But we just felt a huge weight of responsibility to push this out to as many parts of the UK as possible. And we looked at Sheffield because there was some high mental health need there. Mm -hmm. um, we found a funder who um, pretty much aligned with um, what we wanted to do and some of our core beliefs and some of our core strategies aligned really, really well with this particular funder. Um, South Yorkshire Community Foundation. Um, and we applied for some funding to replicate the 12-week model for, for Sheffield. Um, and we were successful. Um, so we went about finding someone who could deliver this, because obviously us down in Kent, there's no way we can be traipsing backwards and forwards to Sheffield like every, every <laughs> yeah. Monday night to do an hour session um, up in there. Um, but we found this um, marvellous volunteer chap, chap, called, uh, chap called Keith, um, who we trained up um, and he he ran with it and we entrusted him to um, deliver the session the way that it needs to be delivered. Um, we did go up a couple of times just to, you know, just to give him some support, just to make sure that it was, it was running the way that it needed to. Um, if anything, if anything, I would say um, those sessions probably have been some of the sessions that I'm most proud of because we did all the legwork from Kent, you know, like we, we mm -hmm. ran the project remotely. Uh, we only yeah. met Keith in person a few months ago up to Sheffield at the, at the end of the funding period. So we really wanted to challenge ourselves to see, is it possible for a, a Kent mental health charity to 
get funding for South Yorkshire? Uh, can we find a volunteer who can deliver it? Can we train that person up? And then most importantly is, will that translate on the pitch? So the mental health support, the, you know, the talking side of things, the, you know, the group interaction. Um, and it really has, and it's been amazing because um, it was a big risk. I'll be honest with you, it was a big mm. risk um, and it could have gone massively wrong. But what we've actually seen is um, Sheffield FA, who we've been working really, really closely with, um, have actually taken the project on as a legacy. So it's now, um, the, the group is still there, they're still playing football together once a week, but it's actually, the legacy is run by um, Sheffield FA. So we really felt like we've passed that on to a really, really safe pair of hands. So um, it's been great to see. And it's quite funny one week, actually, I got this, um, I got this photo from Keith and he, he used to do it every week. He'd always take a group photo at the end and, you know, I think he was trying to show me how many people had turned up, but he'd always take his group photo. <laughs> and then one week, I sort of zoomed in and I went, who's that bloke? And I sort of zoomed in and zoomed in again. And it was Chris Waddle. Oh, <laughs> really? Wow. Chris Waddle, Jeez. who happened to be playing on the pitch. So it's a beautiful facility up there in Sheffield that we've got. But there were three, three, three 3G pitches, one next to each other. And Chris Waddle, uh, uh, I think he was planning in some sort of group with his mat with his mates. And he'd seen that the head in the game session was taking place. And he had all these guys sort of stood in the centre circle. And he'd literally just sort of popped his head around the door and sort of said, um, what are you doing, lads? What's, you know, what's all this? And Keith, who's really good at this sort of thing, was like, well, why don't you come in and have a little play? So anyway, yeah. so a bit of a claim to fame there that Chris Waddle has been to a head in the game session. But um, yeah, it, and I think that really rang true with me because it just shows that, you know, the power of a group of people stood in the centre circle talking on a football pitch mm. for 10 minutes at the beginning and 10 minutes at the end of a session. Mm. People will spot that and be like, what are they doing? What's that all about? Yeah, mm. yeah. Chris Waddle popped in, popped in for a little bit. isn't it? <laughs> so what, obviously Sheffield is your first venture out of mm. outside of the Kent area. Mm. Is there plans then to expand into into further afield, is there? There is. We've done some work in London. We've done um, a lot of work with some of the um, professional football clubs there, trusts and foundations. So um, uh, Brentford, Millwall, Charlton Athletic, um, West Ham. We're doing a session with Chelsea tomorrow night um, up in West London as well. Um, but the real aim is to um, turn Head in the Game into a, into a national charity. And um, like we said earlier on, that will need some, that will need some national funding. Um, we... We love working with the football clubs because it's um, it gives us what we need, which is exposure to a wider audience. So, you know, it's yeah. not just about the the glamour of working with, you know, someone like West Ham or Brentford or, or, or whoever. Um, it's actually about reaching their their core audience, which is their supporters. So, if, you know, if you take someone like West Ham, for example, you know, 65,000 people on a, on a match day. And then the fan base, I think their Twitter following, I can't remember what it was, I think it's like five or six million followers, all the people that follow on Facebook and Instagram. All we need is one of our messages to be shared when we're working with that football club and the message gets reached by such a such a wide audience. Um, and we've been quite, I'm sorry, picky, that's probably the wrong term, but we've, we've, we have been a bit picky with the clubs that we've wanted to work with because um, not all of the football clubs have a gap in their provision for this type of thing. Mm. Some of the other mm. football clubs have already got these types of programs, but we've kind of looked at the clubs whose um, whose missions and their um, 
goals and aims and objectives as a charity is similar to ours. Um, and they're the clubs that we've worked really, really close with. So um, short answer is yes. Um, but I think we're probably more looking into um, 2025 for that expansion, expansion into, into mm. the wider areas of the UK. So have the FA um, shown any interest in this from a national perspective? You know, I used to work for the FA and I know these type of things because it's any sort of project that will get more people playing because obviously that looks good for their Sport England figures. Mm. Um, but I don't know if you've ever had any sort of liaisons with their grassroots department uh, up at Wembley to explore this. <laughs> oh, you've tried, <laughs> yeah? yeah. trying. Um, I did have I did have a slightly um, slightly ambitious idea uh, last year that um, all of the clubs and trusts that we've worked with, all the football clubs and trusts we've worked with who have um, come on board with heading the game, um, we've all we've all shared experiences around suicide and people that we have sadly lost. So mm -hmm. a lot of the foundations, a lot of the clubs that we've worked with, they have had experiences of participants of their programmes who have tragically taken their own lives. Um, and it just dawned on me uh, last summer, we did a, um, a suicide memorial match um, at the Dem, home of Millwall. Mm -hmm. um, one, of our, one of our coaches um, lost one of his best friends to, to suicide. And we wanted to honour his memory. Um, gentleman's called Max Ramsden, but we wanted to um, honour his memory with a, um, a suicide prevention football match. And we, and we did it at the Den. And it just dawned on me that, the, I suppose, the, the way that we're really going to get the message through about talking about suicide and talking about positive mental health um, is almost like a soccer aid style football match. And one of the things mm -hmm. that I have been really passionate about trying to get through to the right person at the FA, Simon, so you might be able to help with this, but is a suicide prevention football match that takes place at Wembley. Um, and the people who play in that match are the friends and families of those people that we've tragically lost um, over the previous year. Um, we've mentioned mm -hmm. it to a couple of the local FAs. The local FAs have loved this. So Sheffield FA, Kent FA, we've spoken to about this. Um, but finding the right person to take this forward um, in the FA, I would say, has been a challenge. So if you do know of anyone, Simon, or if you can get us in, um, we yeah. feel that this type of event, this type of event um, could be something that's really, really powerful to yeah. mm. not to get the conversation started because the conversation's already started around mental health. But I think the conversation needs to be more at the forefront of people's minds. and People need to know what to say and how to say it if someone is, you know, talking about suicide is, well, you know, like, what do I say? What do I do? And I think these types mm -hmm. of large events will almost put confidence um, into people to have the bravery to actually ask the serious questions that could save a life. Yeah, there's a guy I know, um, Luke Baker, he works in that team. Um, he's Kent-based. He's in, like, Sittingbourne area. Um, he he does lots of great work. So um, we, one of our previous guests, Charlotte Richardson, who's um, yeah. a, a commentator, she's doing a lot of great work with um, Luke at the moment, connecting with grassroots football clubs and what they want from the future. So okay. I know also that the, the Wembley pitch, because we always used to play a staff game um, but after the last England international 
around October sort of time. So before they go into, you know, reseeding and everything else, there's always a gap there where that type of match could be facilitated. And they always want a national partner, a charity partner. So if you think uh, Prince William, massive advocate of mental health and well-being, yes. something that he would probably endorse as well. Um, so it's worth writing to her, his you know, Twitter and that, because they are quite responsive. I remember sending them a message before and someone did come back. So I can, I can definitely connect you with Luke and you can yes. at least have a conversation. And if he's not the right person, he, he might be able to suggest who, who would be. So yeah, that's not a problem. Imagine, you can leave that with me. Yeah. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And could you imagine how powerful it is if, you know, not just the Premier League clubs, but if, you know, I don't yeah. know, all 92 clubs sent a representative, someone in their community who's been affected by suicide to play in this, to play in this suicide memorial match, okay, the game might need to have quite a lot of substitutions to get all uh, all ninety two people on the pitch. Yeah, but what a powerful statement that would be! And if it was at the home yeah. of football at Wembley and it was backed by the FA, and you know we could get maybe someone like Prince William to, you know, to, to endorse it or put his name to it. It's these types of things that are going to have a huge difference. And I don't know if you've ever come across the Baton of Hope, um, the guys yeah, yeah. Um, the charity last year who. Uh, I, I was blown away by what um, what happened there because that was such a starting from such a small acorn, and I can remember when the first messages sort of popped up and everything. And then to take that baton to Parliament and to talk mm. to the Prime Minister about suicide, and I just looked at that, and I I, I was I've, I've only I've only met uh, it's Mike, isn't it? I've only I think I've only yeah. met him once, ever so briefly. Um, but I was just blown away by his passion, and um, we were part of that. We did a little, um, we had a stand um, just outside the um, Tate Modern Gallery um, that day in London. But I was blown away by what he was able to achieve by just knocking on the doors and being really consistent with the message. The message was really, really consistent that there needs to be more done by our government to prevent suicides because a lot of the suicides are prevent preventable and mm, since mm. then in the suicide prevention fund that you know 10 million pounds that's being made available to charities um to do more work in this field but that's not gonna be enough money by the way they need to at least treble that to, to have a real um, to, have a yeah. real, um uh, to make a real dent in it but the si the early signs are good but i just think i just see this event being the, one of the most you know alongside the baton of hope being something that could be really really powerful well, when we used to play as staff, you got a 20-minute game, you know, so 11 v 11, 20-minute game. It's something they're used to facilitating, you know, so they they can do it logistically. It's just getting people in now, rotate yeah. round. Uh, and if yeah. you're going to have people there on the day, you know, to sell some beers and, you know, get some sort of atmosphere there, I'm sure they'll look yeah. at that. And they can always work it out. They're so used to running a big events there that they're, they're very proficient at it. I mean, our last guest was uh, Anna Wardley uh, from the Luna Foundation, and uh, she supports children or people who work with children bereaved by parental suicide, you know, and I'm part of the lived experience group because my own father took his life when I was uh, uh, six years old. And I think there's there's also connections there. Do you know, if you've got people who've died, um, it's the children who need support as well because, uh, you know, the, the statistics say they're three times more likely to die by suicide themselves if a parent has taken their own life. So there's lots of great charities doing great work out there. And, you know, um, if your volunteers ever need to just look for resources, the uh, the Lunar mm. Hub Foundation has got some great free resources that people can always just go 
you know, is there a book that I can have a conversation that will just help me uh, facilitate that conversation with a young person? So it's worth checking out that. Um, now, we'll off the back of our, our, our training before, myself and Sports Connect, I don't know if you've heard of Sports Connect in Kent, quite a good um, community group. Yeah. We created a level one around mental health and first uh, mental health, first aid and uh, sports leadership for young people. Um, so anyone aged 14 plus, and this was, they would get a level one qualification if they did the prerequisite hours and stuff, because we wanted that peer to peer. We wanted them to, young people to facilitate that conversation. Now, I don't know if you've come across Medway United. Um, you know Medway United very well. Yes, yeah, I do. Yeah. So I did the mental health champions um, first aid course, you know, and the work that they're doing around replicating your model, but for young people. again. You know, linking into the work you're doing around growth, we're going to get you doing all sorts in a minute. You know, <laughs> yeah. <new sports. laughs> but is that also on the horizon? I suppose. It, yeah. Are you making it for younger people as well, or is there more logistics around safeguarding, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, with that younger demographic? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. So um, that's probably the third question we get asked the most: Is there anything for under eighteen-year-olds? Um, and the short answer is not at the moment, but there will be. Um, the, the safeguarding element is a, is, is a big thing for us. Um, and something we're really passionate about getting right is we're only going to deliver a project or we're only going to go for funding if we genuinely believe that we are the best people to deliver that. And you've mentioned some um, incredible organisations there who at this precise moment are probably better placed than us to deliver that. Um, mm. But I think it would be really silly not to... Um, not to say that within the next couple of years, I think Head in the Game will be probably more focused on um, under 18s and the women's um, game yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Because I think they're just two things that, um, if I'm being entirely honest, I'm mean, not experts yet about the men's stuff. We're, you know, we're, we're pretty much there. We're pretty much there. Mm -hmm. We've still got a little bit to learn and you know, every, every new session, we, we find out a little bit more and, you know, we kind of add to our knowledge bank. But, um, yeah, women's sessions and under-18s are going to be a huge focus for us um, over the next couple of years. That's fantastic to hear. Uh, we are adding a lot more onto what your organisation <laughs> does, uh, as Simon says. Like, we, uh, obviously, we said about, you know, we obviously want you to expand around the world. Mm. Um, but <laughs> what, what, I suppose, what goals had you set for the organisation coming into 2024, besides world domination, I suppose. <laughs> There's quite a lot of stuff there, isn't there? There's quite yeah. a lot of stuff. Um, so, I mean, one of the first goals that we set um, as uh, a CIC when we first started out is that we wanted to have a head in the game session in every Kent town. And I said that on BBC News, right? So this stick that the trustees sometimes beat me with, how are you getting on with that uh, every Kent town? And I'm like, well, it's been three years, we've got three left to do, so we're almost there. Um, but I think for um, 2024, for us, it's it's going to become um, it's going to become about becoming masters of our craft. So, like I sort of alluded mm -hmm. to a little bit there, you know, we've you know we've got this 12 week program. Um, we have two other programs that we launched last year that we want to um, that we want to get funded on a, on a wider scale. Um, one of those is called Best of Living, which is um, all around the cost of living crisis. And we did a trial of that with the West Ham United Foundation um, up in East London um, in, the, in, in the winter of 2023. And Best of Living is taking all of the um, 
all of the mental health elements of our of our initial program that we call football for thought um and looking at how we can give people um tips and advice to get them through the cost of living crisis because that has been one of the key things that we have heard consistently over the last couple of years you know i'm not feeling good i'm feeling down i'm really worried about the bills i'm really worried about the mortgage i've got enough money to put food on my table each night and it's terrifying when you think these are you know middle-aged guys who have all got full-time jobs and families and yeah. you know have paid their way in, in life and you know there they are contemplating having to go to a food bank and mm -hmm. we wanted to be reactive to that because that has been a huge um a huge thing that has been mentioned in a lot of our sessions and but for some it, it has led them to you know to talk about you know suicide and you know some some, some really dark things so um that's one of the programs that we've done is called best of living and we've got another uh, program that we are um, working on this year, which is called Off the Bench. And Off the mm -hmm. Bench is looking at um, the construction industry. So the construction yeah. industry for a while, we know, um, is um, sometimes a bit of a closed and almost like a, a kind of a, a secretive um, uh, environment for people to work in. Um, mm -hmm. Long hours, um, obviously heavy manual labour, a lot of people do. Um, sometimes you've got get up and you've got to travel to central London to do like 10 hours yeah. work. Um, and we, and we know that there is a mental health problem there. Uh, and the reason we know that is there are quite a few charities that are now turning their attention to looking at the construction industry. Um, but what we've done is we've managed to find a couple of, um, uh, local organizations in Kent, so local construction firms who are going to be working with us. And what we're going to do is we are going to train them in the basics of um, mental health and well-being, but we're still going to have that football element attached to it as well. So um, mm. with one of those companies, we've, you know, we've sort of said, look, we can put the football sessions on for your staff. We just need you to get them to turn up and then we'll do mm. the, we'll do the mental health stuff as well. Another thing we found out about the construction industry, which um, sadly sort of comes hand in hand is the, is the, the social culture. So like I said, long hours, um, and there is that kind of mentality of all the lads down the pub afterwards. So there's yeah. high alcohol consumption. Um, there's mm. also quite high drug cons consumption as well. You know, we've done our research. Mm. We kind of know, we kind of know that this is a thing. So we just want to create um, more safe environments for people who um, might not even recognise that there's a problem. It's just that's just my work, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. So, yeah, so um, two new programs, as I say, um, off the bench and, uh, and best of living. So they're going to be big things for us to focus in on. And you really are signing me up to a lot of stuff today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope I was writing all this down and holding me accountable all of this. Um, we'll be checking back in in six months, and if these all aren't running, we'll be, we'll be taking action. Has he done his homework? <laughs> Has he done all the things that he said he yeah. Um, but for us, it's the women's sessions, um, mm. you know, like the, uh, the explosion and popularity of women's football since the, uh, since the Euros and obviously the uh, World Cup final last summer. Um, I would probably say anything from 50 to 60 inquiries last year um, from women um, and um, partners of women, you know, um, husbands, yeah. wives, girlfriends, et cetera, et cetera, asking, is there a place where their partner can go? Um, yeah. So we were reactive to that and um, we made a wonderful partnership with um, Margate Football Club um, mm -hmm. and we've been working closely with their women's team there. 
Um, but also we put on a 12 week program for um, local residents of, of, of Thanet. So, you know, sort of Margate, Ramsgate, Broadstairs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was incredible because although what we were delivering was essentially the same sort of stuff, the results and the feedback and the way that the sessions went was a huge learning curve for us. And I don't need to tell you this, Simon, but men's mm. mental health is very, very different to women's mental health. You know, yeah. women will always put other people first, you know, so it was, you know, so it was really, really interesting when we put this group of um, uh, 14 women together from the Thanet area and to run the program with them that some of the challenges and some of the difficulties and some of the things that were lowering their mental health and their mental fitness was totally different to the sort of things that men would come to the sessions and talk about. So we were really fortunate. We got in a wonderful um a wonderful coach, lady by the name of Lisa Adams, um, who um, works um, for the University of Canterbury, I think it is, um, as a mental health uh, mental health nurse. Uh, she came along and volunteered her time and has now become one of our volunteers. And she ran the programme so fantastically, um, so much so. Um, our friends at Chart and Athletic, um, we're going to be running the women's sessions with them, um, I think starting in April. Yeah, April it is. So, yeah, really, really big changes for us. And to go from just men's mental health and men's football to now start talking about the women's game and women's mental health and mm. the uh, cost of living and the construction industry. It, it, it really feels like we're making a, um, a big impact on areas that for quite a while now have probably needed um, a bit more of a focus and a spotlight on. Because construction industry is huge, you know, and there's a guy called Steve Kerslake that does a bit in this sort of area, isn't there? And, mm -hmm. Earlier last year, I was doing a lot of um, mental health courses for the CITB for the people who work and support their apprentices. So they have apprentices across the country and they have this team of people who then support them. And they could have 80, 90 people. In, in Scotland, it's 120 mm -hmm. plus apprentices that they're looking after. So yeah. when you go to these big sites, wherever they pop up, you'll find that when the work dries up in your local area, you've got to travel, haven't you? So then they've got yeah. to stay in digs in hotels. Like yeah. you say, they go to the bar because that's what you do to fill your time. Where if they had head in the game sessions close to those big sites, you go, well, actually, lads, let's go out and play football tonight rather than propping yeah. up the bar for three hours and then getting up and doing another 12-hour shift or whatever it is that they're doing. So it's amazing to hear that, you know, head in the game is going to be uh, supporting that because the suicide rate, as we know, is extremely high in the construction industry. Mm -hmm. So. I, I think I've seen on LinkedIn, and I don't know if they're a trustee, but you seem to have a famous actor, um, you know, promoting your work. Is that person a trustee? And, um, you know, how have you roped these uh, famous people in? We've got Chrissy yeah. Waddle in one end and then, yeah, uh, it's just, you know, uh, it's a, a cavalcade of stars, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, people are going <laughs> to think they're going to rock up and meet David Beckham yeah. or something. So. Yeah. Chris Waddle was just one of those coincidences. We can't, yeah. I cannot, cannot take any credit for that one. Um, but yeah, um, so um, Jason Fleming, um, uh, famous actor, um, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking bar Barrels, mm. Snatch. Uh, he's done loads of really, really good shows. He was in something recently on um, Sky Atlantic. Uh, or was it Sky? I think it was Sky Atlantic, um, which was all about um, gangsters in the in the sort of 1980s. A really, really good actor. Um, but he's our patron. He, he, ah, he's patron. Our yeah. patron. And, and we met Jason, uh, when did we meet him? Probably August, September of last year. And um, he's actually done loads of charity work. He's, he's one of these guys mm. who um, is kind of dedicated um, a large part of his life to um, 
charity work and, and volunteering and he's done some amazing work um in prisons going in talking to prisoners and you know um giving motiv motivational speeches in there but um he's actually um quite a, quite a good friend of one of our trustees um and um, when we pitched the idea to him he was like right up my street i love the sound of this um mm -hmm. so uh, yeah we met him we, we did a couple of zoom calls and we sort of pitched the charity and to his credit he went you don't need to pitch the charity he said i've looked into you guys i love what you do where do i sign mm. and i was just like mm, wow perfect. yeah um, and what he's managed to do which has been really good he he fronted up our um, our christmas campaign um show suicide red mm -hmm. um, he spoke on camera um, quite candidly um but the real power of him is is of course as an actor you know he's a famous actor mm -hmm. and um, we're going to be doing some work uh, with the royal opera house um over the next over the oh. next few months um they they reached out to us and um wanted us to go in there and look at um, mental health strategies and look at how we can um you know in, improve the the mental well-being in, in some of their teams um and that is really up jason street because obviously mm -hmm. being an actor he, he knows some mm -hmm. of the people there and um he will be he will be someone who i think will be uh, really really important not in terms of it being a famous face talking about mental health but also you know sharing personal journeys and i think you know mm. when you have a charity like ours and it's it's quite a difficult subject and like we said you know suicide and mental health but to have someone normalizing that conversation and someone mm. in the public mm. eye to be talking about you know to be talking about their struggles and to say look you know i'm considered a you know a, a famous face and considered to be very successful in my life but i still go through the same difficulties as you mm. You know, so um, yeah, no. To get Jason Fleming on board, we're uh, absolutely delighted. And and while we're on that, um, we actually uh, managed to get a new ambassador, um, a professional footballer, nonetheless, um, chap called um, Regan Tamalti, uh, who plays for um, Hamilton Academical, and he sort of popped up on our radar because he he sort of stuck his head above the parapet and did a um, a very um, a very hard hitting story in the Daily Mail um, mm. all about. Um, how difficult it is when you transfer from one football club to another. So he left, um, huh. I forget who it was now, but he left one of the teams in Scotland. I, think, I want to say it was Falkirk or Dundee to play for Hartlepool. And I think Hartlepool at the time were in League Two, going through a relegation battle, and he didn't yeah. have a particularly good time. And, you know, this is not to the detriment of Hartlepool United, but it was a, it was a big move for him away from friends and family, and it, and it didn't work out. And he wanted to share his experiences and make that, you know, make make it known that just because you're considered to be a success, it's mm. still difficult when you're getting fifty or sixty negative messages sent through to you on Twitter or Instagram, and you know, like the 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 daily grind of how boring it actually can be as a professional footballer away from home. You know, once mm. you get to like two o'clock and training's over, then well, what do I do? Sort of sat around yeah. the house with nothing to do until training the following morning and a match day on a Saturday and a Tuesday. So. Um, we reached out to him and said that one of the things that we were really passionate about was um, making a difference within professional football. So a lot of what we've spoken about today has more been about members of the public and, you know, helping helping the, the, the average Joe on the speak, uh, street, so to speak. But talking to Regan, we kind of realised that there is possibly some really, really big issues within professional football where mm. um, we know that young players especially when they get to certain ages they're most likely to be released by big clubs and 
They yeah. don't always get caught. You know, there's not that safety net there. And some of them might need to drop down from playing for, I don't know, Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, and then might find themselves at Gillingham, at Burton, if they're lucky, or have to drop down to non-league. And, and some people just won't play anymore. And we were like, mm, well, yeah. who, who who supports those people? You know, like, what's the, mm. what's the process there? Um, but more so what Regan was talking about, and again, Hamilton are in uh, League One in Scotland, so you know they're, they're they're very focused on getting back to the Championship. But he was talking about the the pressures of that and the pressures of how much time is spent as a professional footballer thinking about football and nothing else, yeah. and how difficult that can be. So yeah, we're absolutely delighted to have him on board because he'll be able to open up a few more doors for us um, and hopefully get more professional footballers to open up and share some of those stories and. You know, someone like Delhi Ali recently has, you know, has really been really brave in, in talking about yeah. mental health, and I think we need more people who can do that. Mm-hmm. And I think I suppose like we've had previous guests that kind of overlap. That we we spoke with, um, uh, I forgot his name, um, Hugo Schechter. Runs the Hugo Schechter, yeah, mm. um, and his kind of organisation. I think an element of I remember when we discussed it with him especially when you start talking about professional footballers, there can be a perception of spoiled, you know, they live a gilded life and people kind of overlook, you know, that they're they're just like you and me. They they have the same problems. They have the same worries, you know, like you say, it, 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 it may be that they're thinking and worried about football, but it's no real different. Like, I suppose when we started the conversation, we said like you'd lost your job, it's those everyday worries that you have about working and, and jobs and stuff, but it just so happens their job is to play football, isn't it? Oh, sorry. No, no, I was going to say, carry on. No, I, I didn't, I, I won't betray any confidence and obviously won't mention any names, but you know, he, he sort of told me that if you're out the first team, then you're, you're out, you're, you're out the club almost, you know, if you're not training with the first yeah. team, you're training with the reserves, you're up for sale, a new manager comes in, he doesn't want you in the team, doesn't want, even want you in the club. And we hear it all the time in the Premier League. And, you know, yeah. this player, he's up for sale. He's not, I heard it with um, Pep Guardiola, said it in quite a nice way about Calvin Phillips. He was like, I don't yeah. need you in my team mm. ever, you know. Yeah. And now hopefully he's going to get that way out and, you know, join, join West Ham on loan. Um, but if you're in League One in Scotland, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, it's quite a small pool of players that you're talking about. Yeah. And you're obviously talking about less less wages and less salary. And, yeah. you know, if you are playing for somebody like, let's say, for instance, Falkirk, and you're not in the first team, the manager doesn't, doesn't rate you and you've got to go and you might have to drop down the league, you know, you could find yourself playing 150 miles up the road for a lot less money. Yeah. <laughs> What is the impact on your life? Not your football career, but what is the actual no. impact on your life? You know, like yeah. kids at school, if you've got, you know, like a mortgage and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, we just looked at it as a charity and we was like, not so much your top players because your top clubs mm. will have all types of um, well-being support and welfare support and the players will be looked after. But, you know, when you sort of look at League One down, how many players are there that are free agents and aren't currently playing? There must be well, there must be hundreds. There's like, low and so these guys. And, and I'm assuming like COVID has had an even bigger impact on this bit. Where and I like I support a, a non-league side. Woking. The benefit I suppose for the for non-league sides is 
we've had a better pool of players to pick from because mm. the league size have trimmed their squads down sure. and and they just don't have the budget to hold those squads. So it's trickled down. But but, but the bit that I, I suppose football fans forget about is, again, it goes back to this. These, this is the, what these players do for a job. So, you know, at the end of the day, we just assume that someone that's playing for your team is, you know, they love playing football. Um, you know, they are getting paid, but you kind of forget that they're on a career path as well. In that, you know, I'm reminded like I, um, a, a few of my friends are Swindon Town fans, and they had, um, uh, I'm trying to think, till last season, they had Johnny um, Owen or whatever his name is that was playing for the Wales, uh, for Wales. Uh, so he was playing in what would it be the second, first division. Yep. Now he. Swindon obviously didn't want to renew his contract, but obviously from his perspective, he doesn't want to go any further down the pyramid or he doesn't want to kind of take a wage drop because mm. ultimately he's obviously got commitments in his life. I've seen it with Woking players as well, where you have players that drop down. Um, I suppose where non-league is a bit different in that you'll get teams where someone pumps loads of money into them and actually, well, like look at Wrexham, for example, mm. um, there'll be players that do drop down because they can earn more money. But I think as football fans, we forget they go through the same kind of trials and tribulations yeah. that, you know, everyone else does, but it's just, it's a bit more kind of you, people have a perception while well, you're a footballer, it's, you know, you're getting paid to do something you like. Uh, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I think the further you go down the pyramid, I think more of an issue this is, Glad you mentioned Wrexham. I think there's a growing group of people now that are a bit like they really are just going to buy their way to the to the Premier League. And I know I don't know yeah. it's nice. I know it's nice with the documentary. I know it's nice for the community, the right sort of thing. But um, it's a that is a brand led football club now with all the endorsements yeah. and, the, and the things like that. Um, so yeah, our, our local team, local local to us, you know, you've got Gillingham on one hand, you've got Maidstone on the other. You know, both those clubs um, have traditionally in their history been um, really solid sort of division, what we'd call Division Four back in the day, but obviously we've got yeah. it now. Um, and I've gone on con- contrasting con- contrasting journeys over the last sort of 20, 25 years where, you know, Gillingham were in the championship. And at one point, I remember they were like seventh or eighth in the championship. And there was like, could Gillingham really make the playoffs? Yeah. And Maidstone went out of business and they've sort mm. of fought their way back now. And you sort of look at those two football clubs and the way that they are now. And you think, well, they're... They're probably not a million miles apart. I mean, there's a the division that separates them. I think Gillingham are maybe like tenth or eleventh in League League Two. Uh, Maidstone are second in the. Um, I still call it the Conference South, but the National League South. Um, yeah. But you kind of look at that and you go, well, if you're a, an out of contract, um, half decent, twenty seven year old um, footballer, and you've you know you haven't had a club for six months, but, and your last club was someone in League Two, do you yeah. now go look? If I don't get a club soon. <laughs> If I don't get a club this season, then where am I going to go? So maybe you would just have to drop your expectations and maybe go and play for somebody like Maidstone at the top of the National League South. Drop two divisions low, knowing that you're not going to get anywhere near the wage that you got before. And, you know, football's yeah. a short, it's a short career. You know, like you're playing, you know, at a good level, maybe for 12, 13 seasons maximum. Not years, yeah. 12, 13 seasons, don't forget. If two of those are taken away from you by injury, if 
I don't know, maybe one of those is taken away because the club signs a better player than you in your position and you don't play and then you feel like you have to move. I mean, how many, mm. you know, how many more times do you have to be let go or how many times do you have to be sold before you find your level where you are happy and you are comfortable yeah. as a footballer? And, you know, mustn't forget that, you know, what we're talking about here is is the, the mental well-being of someone who has a job. Forget that he's mm, football. Yeah. This is the mental well-being of someone yeah. who has a job. And, you know, when I hear these stories, I, I, I tend to always think the same thing is, like, would we quit our jobs where we're doing now and take a 40K pay cut but travel to the other side of the country to do it? Well, we wouldn't, yeah. we? It, you know, like, it, it, right. it, it, there's have to be a really serious reason why we would do that. But that's what we expect to footballers. So when I hear all this stuff online of people going, oh, he, he doesn't play for the shirt, he's not that committed, oh, another lone player. And I go, well, hang on a second. This is a human being who's doing a job in a pressurised environment who gets all the stick, gets all the grief, but gets paid quite well for it. Yeah. But one injury or one change of management and all of that changes overnight. And then all of a sudden, if your contract isn't renewed, then where do you go next? And I, 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 it, just, yeah. it just worries me that this isn't really spoken about enough. And this is something that we know is a huge piece of work. And, you know, it probably won't be something that we can do by ourselves. And we, we, we definitely will need to, you know, get some, get some supporters on, um, on board for this. But what happens to these people? Because not everyone gets picked up by Sky or BBC to be commentators. No. Not everyone gets picked up to be a manager or a coach these days. There are only so many roles that go around. And I don't know, I just look at it and I think, I just think it's, it's one of the things that football has got massively wrong is that I don't think we protect young players well enough. Well, I, when I first met my now wife, um, her landlord was an ex-professional footballer. So he played um he played lower league but he actually ended up playing in the Premier League for a bit for Coventry. Okay. Um so his his name is Carl Lightbourne. So he 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 played he was like an iconic player at um I think it was at uh yeah, he was at Stoke hmm. um at Port Vale. And then he was at uh, Coventry kind of like two thousand um uh, 2001 kind of era but speaking to him what he was saying was so he'd kind of gone from playing lower league and then he'd also like kind of the premier league element was almost like a nice surprise if that makes sense yeah um so he kind of had that exposure but one of the things he talked about was a lot of the teams he worked with uh, or played with um you had a real problem with people like players coming in um wasting money on things like car financing deals um just generally burning through money and mm. one of the things he was ended up doing was uh, some of the teams he was at he was having to lend money to the younger players wow. who were literally just running out of money like he said like even a week after payday wow. um and they were just burning money just either to keep up with I suppose it's like keeping up with the Joneses to some degree, yeah. but it was all about cars, um, everything. And like he even had players sleep on his sofa for a bit wow. who didn't have money to buy like to, to live anywhere because they're just spending all their money. Wow. And he just said it was a massive problem. Mm. Um, and I suppose where he, he was quite lucky in that. So I, 
to catalogs. I met my wife. I was working in Bermuda. He's Bermudian. Mm. So he came over to play professional football in England slightly later than I suppose your average player would come through. So he'd actually worked and everything like that. So he had, he was a bit more grounded, but he could never get his head around like how much money these younger players was, was spending mm -hmm. and how like there was just no real, there's no advice from the clubs to help them or anything. Yeah. And it was just like, they're just running out of money and that's when they're earning good money. Yeah. So what happens when they, they stop? And I suppose you see that now with, there's so many players that are now declaring bankruptcy and stuff. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, we got um, uh, we got really quite close um, to um, Stephen Reid, who's played for um, Millwall, yeah. Blackburn, uh, Public of Ireland. Went went to a World Cup, and uh, Reedy came to one of our sessions um, down in Millwall. He did a he did a piece on Sky Sports News a couple of years ago, um, where he left his job uh, working for Nottingham Forest, um, first team coach. And he dedicated a year to getting a, um, I think it was a degree in it was mental health psychology, I think it was. Anyway, and he, he, he went on Sky Sports News to say, look, this is why I'm quitting Nottingham Forest. Um, mm. And this is what I want to do. I, I've noticed that there's a, there's a problem in football. It's around mental health. I've suffered. I want to share my story. Anyway, we saw this pop up on Sky Sports News one lunchtime. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to track this guy down. And I did. Mm. And I managed to find his email address. And I sent him an email and said, look, this is what we do ahead in the game. Uh, we're doing some stuff with Millwall. Would you be interested in coming along? And lo and behold, within like an hour, he came back and he was like, yeah, I'd love to see what you do. You know, where do I, where do I sign sort of thing? Anyway, so Reedy came down to one of our sessions and he is not what you would think at all. He is one of the most nicest, kindest, friendly, open um, ex-professionals I've ever met. And I'll never forget, um, he turned up at the Den, because um, at the Den there's like a, an indoor, they've got an indoor 3G pitch that we that we use for the sessions. And he was visibly nervous. He was so nervous. And there was only like 10 of us there. Uh, it was on a Sunday night as well, bizarrely. We usually run our sessions on a midweek, but for some reason this was on a, a Sunday night. And he came along and he said, Mark, he goes, I'm, 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 I'm so happy to be here, but I'm really, really nervous. And it just hit home that, all the money, all the fame, yeah. you know, even you know, all of the playing in front of fifty, sixty thousand people, all that stuff. But a guy turning up to a, um, a football session at his home club, um, yeah. with ten people, he was really, really nervous. But the reason why I'm telling you this is that it, it really were. And if your listeners um, have got an interest in, in in mental health and football, and you know what, what really happens to professional football, I'd, I'd, I'd implore you to go back and um, have a look at the documentary that Stephen Reid did on. I think it was on Sky Sports. I think it's on Amazon Prime as well. Um, it's only half an hour long, but it told his journey of becoming a pro, but also how he had anxiety. Uh, he didn't want the ball. He didn't want to get picked. He found it really difficult in the changing room. He really went through a really difficult time. But this was the late 90s, early noughties, mid noughties, where there wasn't as many platforms to be able to talk about this stuff. And he really suffered in silence. And then, as I say, he dedicated um, a year out of football to go and get a, a degree. I'm sure it's psychology. I think it is psychology and mental health. Um, and now he's returned back to Nottingham Forest and he's been there, uh, I think, for a season and a, season and a half now. Um, but yeah, we got particularly close to him and he, he, he's a real positive ambassador around uh, mental health in football and um, he actually came and played at that um, suicide prevention match that I was talking about earlier on oh, okay. um, back at the den and yeah he's a really really good guy the other person that's really good around this is uh, Marcus Gale 
who used to play for Wimbledon and yeah. Brentford back in the day. Um, he's now the club ambassador at Brentford. And we've done lots of work with them. And um, he's come to a couple of our sessions and, and we've spoken to him. And he's also got a really interesting story around, you know, the money, the fame, all that sort of thing. But ultimately, he was finding it difficult and he was struggling. And, you know, like even now, um, he won't thank me for saying this, but a guy in his sort of mid to late 50s, um, even the work he does now for Brentford, he still sometimes feels anxious and nervous. And when he, you know, turns up to events, it's, it's you know, it doesn't just flow because you're an ex-professional footballer. You still get those anxieties. And I think it's these voices that are going to make a, a, a huge a huge difference um, in changing things around a professional game because, mm. you know, they're the ones that have lived it. They're the ones that have experienced it. And if they can, if they can continue to share these stories on a, on a wider scale and encourage others to stand up and, and talk and speak about it, then mental health, you know, problems in football hopefully won't be um, won't be as bad as as I suspect they probably are now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I great suppose point. someone like Marcus Gale, like. <laughs> You think like when he was at Wimbledon, the type of environment yeah. he had <laughs> dressing him there. I, and I'm not, you know, that is not the environment I'm assuming that you could stand up and say, I'm struggling a bit here. Mm. I think you probably, you know, the, the char- some of those players they had in that team, like, geez, yeah. I just. I mean, have yeah. you ever heard um, Clark Carlisle's podcast with Under the Cosh? You know, the two parter. Uh, you know, and he's he's doing lots of great work in mental health now mm. uh, with his wife. Uh, but he's quite open. He even though he's a pro, he, he found it difficult all the time, and how he managed that probably wasn't always the healthiest way sometimes. And there's a good no. guy uh, called Francis Duku who's um, set up uh, an, um, you know a PFA for non-league, uh, and he's doing some good work in that area. So he could be quite a good person to connect with Mark. Um, I think yes. he's this sort of area based. He's not far from here, that's for sure. I remember okay. speaking to him uh, a few years ago because uh, he said there's nothing for non-league players in relation mm-hmm. to that. Now, I work for Pearson's on a, an affiliate basis doing uh, apprenticeship assessments. And okay. I, I can tell you, you both, it has improved massively. When I speak to these young men, the clubs are looking after them better. Um, and it still doesn't make that loss. And I, I do see it as grieving for yeah. some of them, that, that career, that that idea that they had that they were going to run out, represent their team, or through injury, you know, through no fault of their own. And then if you remember back to David Wilkes, who we had on as a guest, um, you know, yeah. he was a young pro, got injured by someone who just maliciously took him out of the knee, um, wrecked his career. Yeah. And he was a, a very good sportsman in a variety of different sports. And his mental health struggles, he said, started from back then. And, you know, he's had to live with them for quite a a while in his life. So I think anything you can do in this space to help elite sportsmen, you know, elite sportsmen or sportswomen with those transitions from career ending into new lives, because that's what they really struggle with as well. And it's, you know, career's over. What am I going to do? This is all I've known. And they can go into other stuff, but you don't get that same high that you do from playing in front of people and playing football, you know, and there'll be those low times, you know, that's what you hear quite a lot from uh, Tony Adams, charity and the work that he's done. So for me, anything that you can do in that sort of sphere, Mark, is going to make a, a big difference. And when you collaborate with these other guys, 
and they give you that voice, you know, head in the game, mm. that voice with the wider community. I think it's just going to make you reach out for, for more and more people. So, again, so. Dave, look, it's, a, it's an hour and 28. We've, we've done I know. I was just oh, looking yeah. at that. It's flown by, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Obviously, we will be booking in for six months' time with our checklist of uh, where you've got to, <laughs> yeah, to yeah, make yeah. sure you're, you're achieving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We won't be recording that. That is literally just to follow <laughs> up. Just just, that one. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Mark, we just want to say thank you so much for your time and just giving us insights. And I, I know that people yeah. who, you know, at your, you know, maybe in your similar situation, redundancy. What would I like to yeah. do? What new challenges? And you know, you've yes, got to be admired exactly. for you. You took it as a challenge to go. I want to do something positive mm. uh, off the back of this redundancy, and I'm at, and that's where hopefully other people will draw inspiration from your story to go. You know what, Mark's lived experience. He's had some tough times. Yeah. He's formulated a charity. That charity is growing from strength to strength, and you know, long may it continue. They can see that it is achievable. Uh, you know, and who knows where heading the game, if it goes national and you, you can really start getting this project connecting all the dots that you, you've outlined here today, which there's no reason why it shouldn't. You can just see how powerful this um, program could be for the mental health and well-being of you know, a whole society. You know, because you said it's young people, it's women, it's um, hmm. men uh, and across multiple sports. It's not just going to be across football. So. I just want to say thank you for, so much for coming on and sharing that and yeah, being that inspiration, but also for, you know, doing what you're doing and driving that mental health agenda and trying to play your part as an organization in reducing suicides uh, in society. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, oh, thanks yeah. so much for having me on. And uh, I really appreciate those kind words. And, you know, part of our reflective practice is to um, go back and, um, review things like this so yeah that uh, that really does mean a lot so uh, yeah thank you i really enjoyed it yeah, and i can only endorse what simon said there it, it's been a real pleasure getting to hear what you've been doing and then as simon says like putting the what you've achieved to one side like you, where you started and where you are now it's very impressive to hear how you got to that and the journey so now it's been a real pleasure hearing from you what we'll do as well is put links in the show notes um so people can actually find you obviously um you mentioned um where they can find more but i'll put links in there and then people can uh can just click there and start to find out more about you but as i say i joking aside it would be good to to connect in a few months time and find out how uh things are progressing because i know we kind of polled a few bits on there but you do have quite a lot of new things exciting things that are coming so it would be really good to check in with you and find out how that's all going yeah happily do that look forward to it brilliant cheers mark